Hello, and welcome to another Sarasota Institute podcast. The Sarasota Institute is a 21st century think tank that is focused on 10 major topics we feel important for the future of humanity. Please go to sarasotainstitute.global to learn more. The Sarasota Institute is a nonprofit corporation. Hi, welcome to the Sarasota Institute podcast. I'm Jason Voss, one of the three co-founders. Joining us today is Chris Tucker. He's got a very interesting background. Actually, Chris, share 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 with us the multi part of your like, God, what's the right word? Renaissance man's background that's a oh, for today. Uh, I, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, somehow Renaissance man implies art and I'm just not that guy. Uh, <laughs> you know, so um, I've spent the past 20 years or so at the intersection of geography, uh, technology, strategy, and national security. Um, I actually started out as a PhD political scientist working in the research administration at Columbia University back in the day when uh, we established the Earth Institute. And actually, my, my book uh, is, is kind of grounded in that experience. Um, but yeah, it's, it's uh, kind of working at the intersection of uh, the public sector, private sector, academe, and the social sector has been something I've done for a long time. And uh, I get to meet interesting people like you along the way. So question for you, first of all, the title of the book is Three Billion or something like that. A a Planet of Three Billion. A Planet of Three Billion. And you are a brave man to stick your head up on that issue. I have tried to do so for three decades because to me, you trace back most of the big problems we have societally and globally. It kind of looks like a population sort of a problem. Talk to us about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so back to 25 years ago, a quarter century ago, when we uh, I was at the uh, inaugural lecture for Columbia's Earth Institute, Professor Joel Cohen, who had just published a book called How Many People Can the Earth Support, gave the inaugural lecture. And I was like, that's the most important question we should all be asking ourselves. And I love how he framed it. Um, at the time, he didn't really take a hard stand on how many what the, the numerical answer was, um, but tried to give us a framework for thinking about it. And I found myself, you know, as I finished my PhD and got a job and got a family and bought a house, you know, went through life, um, constantly thinking about it and uh, running into various literatures and uh, uh, bodies of science. And, you know, I, I, I pretty early came on to the realization that we had overshot our planet's carrying capacity. But, you know, I didn't have a concrete answer myself. And it was kind of in the process of leading up to this book that um, I, I I put together my own arguments for why it's 3 billion optimistically. Um, And people say, well, Chris, you know, where are the other 4.8 billion people going to go suddenly? And, you know, I try to point out it's not about that, right? You know, there is a story arc to this and the curve is going to go up and the curve will eventually come down. Uh, The question is, how can we accelerate this already inevitable process of, you know, bringing the population down and do it in a just, humane, ethical equitable manner um, where, you know, humanity isn't faced by just absolute catastrophe and cataclysm. So I I know you're fond of kind of debunking E.O. Wilson's concept about this. Uh, Talk talk to us about why you think E.O. Wilson, who among the cognoscenti has a lot of people's attention and why why you think that needs to be updated. Yeah, you know, I I, I would call it more of a friendly amendment. Um, You know, he, when he wrote his book, I believe it was in 2015 or 2016 called Half Earth, um, you know, uh, it, it was a real wake up call. The, the notion of like 
what percentage of the planet should be set aside from uh, the human footprint if the planet is to be able to support us as a species. And it was a bold stroke to say 50%. I do like to point out that in his book, well, A, he's a biologist, not a geographer. And in his <laughs> book, he really doesn't mention any concrete geographies. And you know, he kind of mentions the Amazon. Um, uh, but what has come from that has been this cottage industry of scientists in the half earth and nature needs half communities that have took that call seriously and did some serious mapping in great detail around the eco regions of the planet. That's what I use in my book. If you look in the middle of my book, I use that eco regions data set and they've done a great job of, of kind of trying to answer that call. Now, methodologically, we could say, okay, you know, if I pave half of that eco region, is it still half as strong? Or, you know, if I cut it in half with a highway bisecting all migratory paths of large terrestrial mammals, is it still, you know, functional? Um, so I think there's devil in the details there, but as an impulse, it's useful. If anything, I'd say, you know, only half. Um, and are we talking <laughs> about half of terrestrial and more than half of the ocean? After all, right, the oceans comprise uh, you know, 99% of the habitable space of our planet, right? Uh, forget about the 70% of its surface. Yeah. So, you know, I would say um, uh, uh, it, it was a useful call. And uh, for instance, right now, uh, the IUCN is uh, considering motion 101, uh, which is to actually uh, pass a motion to say we should be setting aside half the earth. So it is really spurred a great conversation, but I'm very focused on those concrete geographies that actually require conservation or actual rewilding if we are to uh, have a planet that can support us as a species. Really cool idea. Uh, so talk to us about the major tenants there. Like say we go, oh my God, Chris, this is an amazing book. I'm a geographer slash politician or geographer slash business person. And I'm like keen to implement this. What, where do I begin? Yeah, well, first of all, I always like to point out that nearly everybody's a closet geographer. You may not have a degree in it, but you love your maps and you know, you're interested in particular parts of the planet. Well, the first thing I like to point out is the whole book isn't just around population, but I did it for a reason. Um, every year we add 85 million people, let's call it 80 million plus to the planet. That's the equivalent of 10 New York cities every single year. And if you read the news and see what's going on, on the planet, and then you think that is somehow uh, not at the heart of it, um, we need to have a discussion. Uh, so, you know, runaway population growth is a term I like to use, not overpopulation. A lot of people say, oh, overpopulation. And, and you know, they'll point a picture of black and brown people on the other side of the planet and say there's too many people which I always like to point out, there's all these racist and uh, jingoistic, uh, uh, you know, paternalistic overtones, a lot of population discussions from the mid 20th century. Nobody ever points to the picture of all the white people at the country club golf club, uh, golf course <laughs> and say, you know, at the golf tournament and say, oh my God, there's too many people. Um, but, you know, I think it's important for us all to recognize that runaway population growth is undermining our planet's ability to support us as a species. But at the same time, there are things we can do. Uh, there's things we can do right now to put guardrails in place to protect certain regions, eco-regions of the planet, even rewild vast chunks of the planet. Humanity has this really awful um, way of kind of uh, laying waste for economic purposes or some other reason to some part of the planet. 
And then we don't go back and clean up our mess, even though we may not be using it actively economically at all anymore. Um, so there's a lot that can be done to rewild our planet. There's a lot that can be done to uh, uh, give rights, if you will, to natural places um, where there are just holes in human law, right? Uh, we've built human law really around our human property rights. And then, you know, somehow it falls apart out at, after riparian rights in a water, you know, in a body of water or out in the ocean. And so we've learned that we have to really rethink our legal system to bring protections to the natural world. Um, uh, so anyways, there's all these things we can do right now, but in the end, uh, uh, I always fall back on the empowering strategies toward women and girls, um, because it turns out every geography where women are empowered, educated, integrated in the workforce and have access to family planning technologies, you tend to have either break-even fertility or, uh, below replacement value fertility, fewer people in that, uh, that area over time. Minus immigration, right? Sure. Um, and and so uh, you know, empowerment of women and girls is an inherently good thing in and of itself, right? Not as a means to an end, but as a good thing in and of itself. It just so happens it's also the pathway to saving our planet and averting ecological climate catastrophe. Um, so I think that's something we have to focus on. But it doesn't fall on the shoulders of women and girls, right? It turns out men are at least half the problem, if not much, much more when it comes to population. Um, and so it falls on uh, all of our shoulders uh, to um, uh, embrace empowering strategies toward women and girls, and it will pay ecological dividends in addition to being inherently good in and of itself. Great answer. So what, what are the usual resistances you face as you you know lay this thesis out there? Over the years when I've talked about, hey, we've got to reduce the headcount, uh, which I've been doing since my college days as a you know thoughtful I thought environmentalist. I just said a bad word, you know. Um, anyway, like the, the shots that come typically are religious in nature, uh, right? It, you, we're supposed to go forth and be merry and repopulate the earth, or there's some sort of behavioral resistance uh, to why? Why are you asking me to make this change? I want to have as big a family as I want to have for whatever reason. It's it's my body, my whatever. Like what 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 do you typically hear out there? Sure, it's a mix. I mean, if I were to blame a religion, I would blame you know the cult of neoclassical economics. Um, you know, ding, it, ding, it ding. seems it seems like there's so many folks that took undergraduate macroeconomics and. You know, in it, yeah, I remember talking to my professor and go, well, why have 3% accelerator there? And they go, oh, that's population growth. I'm like, well, well I'm just going to project that forever. And they go, yeah, like, well, can we talk about that? And it's like, no. And, and I mean, I know things have got a little more sophisticated in the past quarter century or so, but really not. Uh, a lot of the objections you read in the newspaper are people saying we have to have inexorable GDP growth every year. And if you don't have population growth, inexorable population growth, we won't have that. And I like to point out that there are plenty of countries that actually have declining population every year and they're doing okay. It may not be GDP growth, but their per capita GDP growth is going okay. We need hey. to rethink, right? We have to rethink um, uh, our kind of models, our conceptual models for uh, prosperity and uh, what kind of prosperity we want to have. There's great economists like Joe Stiglitz out there, um, I mean, Nobel Prize winner, former head of the World Bank, you know, who, who it, you know, makes the point that GDP is the wrong measure, right? GDP is the wrong measure for just understanding our economy in general. When you look at climate change, ecological destruction, I think you understand it's the wrong measure. And when you start realizing that 
human population growth is at the core of that, it shouldn't be that inexorable 3%. Beyond the religion of economics, um, I, I would actually say, you know, I th there's always religious leaders out there that are saying things like, you know, uh, go, some version of go forth and prosper um, and and uh, uh, encouraging people to have larger families. But I will say if for every example of that, I can find a counterexample inside that one religion. Um, and it changes over time, very much personality driven. I mean, Iran uh, for a long time in Shiite Islam, right, uh, had a very responsible uh, uh, women empowerment focused reproductive health program that was actually driven by the wives of the religious leaders. And it was only a handful of years ago when the Supreme leader said, nope, we are now going to have babies. And, you know, that's a very specific geopolitical moment. It's very specific uh, personality at the helm. Um, and to which the, many of the young women just say, yeah, Sorry, bro. You know, not going to happen. Um, so, so you know, we can talk about the role of religion in it, but I, I would actually like to um, talk about the diversity of opinion uh, across many faith communities. And there's increasing uh, uh, kind of support for small, educated, and prosperous families. Not the you know have ten kids and bring them to church on Sunday. So, um, I think you're actually going to see quite a bit, even uh, from the Vatican. Um, over the coming years, uh, you know, the Pope in 2018 issued his climate guidance um, and nobody saw that coming. Yeah. And uh, I think you're going to see um, uh, more diversity of opinion and more thoughtfulness about the relationship between population uh, and our planet's carrying capacity coming out of the religious community. I can come up with other folks. Uh, you know, there, there's other kind of quasi religions um, out there that are, you know, doctrinal thinking from the climate action community that hasn't caught up with the climate science community's consensus. Um, uh, don't talk about population because white, wealthy Western company, uh, countries are responsible for more than 10 times uh, you know, the, the carbon footprint, which is 100% true, and we all should change. But it is the, um, the global middle class, right, that is going to add billions and grow billions into, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the global poor are going to be moving into the global middle class just over the next decade. And we have to be wary of that footprint. So all of us need to start thinking about kind of that weight of population and consumption as it's patterned around the world and how we can bring both down because we're way past the planet's carrying capacity, not just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, rewinding slightly in the conversation uh, for Sarasota Institute, I wrote a uh, article about the bad hand dealt to us by GDP as a concept. It's an output yeah. concept. It's not an economic concept. Economics is getting more from the same pile of resources or the same from a smaller pile of resources. Right. And if it was about output, it's kind of like saying to a uh, marathon runner, sprint for as long as you can. Right. And it's like you can drive output for only so long. You actually have to right. be a little bit measured about it. So talk to me about one of the, the possible downsides of it. And this is something I puzzled over for a long time. Okay, all of that's true. Let's get a real measure of economic growth. But we already have a bunch of assets that have been built for a population of whatever it is now. It's changing as we're sitting here, as babies have been born. Um it's called the stranded asset problem. What do we do with all those stranded assets? Because they're going to be hanging out. We're going to have too many highways, too many schools, too many houses, too many. What do we do? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and that's why I wrote my chapter, Reimagining Economics for an Era of Degrowth. I wasn't advocating for degrowth per se. And there's a lot of people in the economics profession say, stop growing. Um, my point was, you know, the latest uh, estimate from uh, Lancet last summer was that uh, we would peak at $9.7 billion in 2064 and then decline just because we will. It's endogenous to, you know, the population dynamics. Then what? Right. Uh, we spent much of the 20th century trying to figure out how to grow a reliable, reliably growing economy in the face of communism. That took decades to kind of figure out. So we need to spend decades thinking through how to ensure uh, prosperity and well-being in the face of continuous degrowth. What a couple of things I'd say there. One is, yeah, we've built things. And guess what? They depreciate for a reason, right? Because they fall apart. They corrode. They collapse. And unless you rebuild them and recapitalize them over time, um, they're no good uh, for you. And guess what's going to happen over the next 20, 30 years as population, say, declines, if we're fortunate? Um, those things will uh, depreciate, right, um, on your books because they will corrode, they will collapse. And we need to have smart rewilding strategies that are paired with smart public finance strategies that try to re-monetize the value of those, recognizing that the deficit in natural capital is actually harming uh, the long-run long uh, viability of our economic prosperity. So how do you price those things, uh, those, those natural wildernesses, those natural uh, sources of natural capital? So as you uh, depreciate those built assets, for instance, you can take them off the books and transfer over to natural capital. Look, I'm not, you know, Pollyanna on this. You know, it's there's there there will be difficulties in transition. But guess what we face every day in a growth economy? Difficulties in transition. Where do we put all these people? How do we, you know, uh, generate enough fresh water for them? How do we, you know, prevent human insecurity and instability? Um, so, so I would argue that the the kinds of problems and the size of the problems, which would de decrease in size every year. Um, is a preferable kind of pickle to be in than the pickle we're currently in. Dude, I think you nailed it, right? Now we're working with thermodynamics, not against it, right? right? Like the nature of the universe is that things fall apart and they disintegrate and it takes tremendous energy to put it together. That the whole economy is putting things together. It let them fall apart is what you're saying. And, and, and the, the natural world has an amazing resilience to it when it's given the opportunity to bounce back. When you think about farming, and I'm from an agricultural family there in Central Florida, actually, so I'm not knocking agriculture, um, but it requires every day waking up at 5 a.m. and running those tractors and using the herbicides and using the pesticides, everything you have to do to keep the wilderness, keeping nature from engulfing your agricultural activity. When you surrender those lands for just a handful of years, the adjacent wilderness does bounce back. Um, uh, so... You know, I, I actually think it's going to require some curated human led rewilding with an appreciation of what the historic wildernesses look like. Um, but you've got all sorts of things, not just physical infrastructure, but all sorts of historic uh, human induced land use patterns that we will need to unwind uh, in a kind of thoughtful, strategic manner to rebuild that natural capital give us a breathing room to the remaining people uh, with an eye towards their long-term prosperity and well-being. Well, my last question, uh, what question do you wish I had asked you and didn't oh. and then answered? Oh, of course. 
Well, you're, you're killing me there. I don't know. Um, you know, the one thing I often like to say in my lectures when I'll give a talk, I start with this ecoregions map. And if you buy my book, at the, uh, the middle of the book, you'll see uh, North America broken down by uh, individual named ecoregion. And then you'll see the human footprint on the opposing page and realize how much of those historic wildernesses we have deleted, annihilated, or otherwise kind of unnecessarily burdened with a human footprint. And, you know, the thing I always say is, wouldn't it be amazing if the the one map that you were raised on, that I was raised on, wasn't that political map, right, with those imaginary lines? You can't you can't see that. I mean, you can see the welcome to Georgia sign right when you head north from Florida, but you, you can't see those lines. Those are invisible lines that are human, human created. But wouldn't it be amazing if we all grew up? knowing our eco region, knowing, you know, what its boundaries were and recognize that it spans all these human political boundaries, whether it's a county or a city or a state or a nation. Um, and it's our responsibility to kind of serve as stewards of those uh, historic wildernesses that actually functionally functionally support us as a species. Uh, it's unclear that those political boundaries functionally support us as a species. Um, in many cases, you look out West and what it's done with water rights and, you know, uh, John Wesley Powell, you know, back in the 1800s, he talked about, you know, don't draw those states along latitude and longitude because you won't, you won't cover the watersheds properly and you're going to have big problems. Well, that man was correct. Um, and, and that's just water is just one piece of that. So I guess the question is, you know, what's your favorite map of the world, Chris? And I'd say it's the EPA ecoregions level four ecoregions map. And boy, wouldn't it be amazing if we had it for the entire planet, not just for the U.S. Um, right now, my book has the, the level three. But I would encourage everybody to just Google ecoregions 2017. Go to the website that you see there and you'll get lost on, in, you know, exploring the various ecoregions. That's what we should be protecting. That's what we should be lifting the human footprint from um, and uh, bringing our, our numbers down so that we can live in balance with our planet. Well, so you're doing your best to defy uh, or, or to uh, affirm my claim that you're a Renaissance man, because what an answer from a geographer. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Geography is one of those Renaissance skills. So where, what, where can people find out information uh, about you? Well, you know, I'd go to my uh, book website, uh, www.planet3billion.com. Um, you can always buy the book if you like, but that's not mandatory. Uh, I, I also have a running blog where I just try to comment on things that are out there. You know, when Elon Musk says ridiculous things like the biggest problem we face is population collapse when we're adding 80 million people a year uh, for the foreseeable next decades, um, I'll put a little commentary in there. Um, uh, uh, so, you know, maybe go there. There's some bio, there's some links. Uh, there's a lot of talks like this one. This one, uh, will end up, uh, if you let me on the website. Um, uh, so you can kind of get different perspectives, uh, that have been pulled out of my brain by, by various, uh, uh, folks like you. All right. Well, wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us. And for those of you in the audience, thanks for being members, Chris, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me and uh, have a wonderful summer. Yeah, thanks very much. Go to www.sarasotainstitute.global for this and other really cool podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please go back to where you downloaded this podcast to find another one that might be of interest to you. Thank you.